On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about China, about the two Michaels, but specifically about a very, very, very interesting comment from Mark Garneau, the foreign affairs minister, that I'm not sure that this is exactly what the federal government wanted as their position, but it raises an awful lot of questions and raises an awful lot of challenges going forward for the government. We'll talk about that. We're also going to chat about the tourism slash hospitality slash entertainment business in Hamilton. It's been really hurt during COVID. However, there is a sign. There is one thing that is giving clear evidence that maybe we are ready to begin pulling ourselves out of this. We're going to talk about that industry, that business, that whole area, and how do we get back to normal? And then we're going to talk about the Toronto Raptors who probably ended an era this week when they lost to Houston, losers of 20 in a row before them. It looks like the Raptors championship generation is now done. So what now? Stick around. Talk about it all. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. So as you know, I hope you know this, as you know, we've now had the trial of the two Michaels, the two Canadians that have been held in China on charges of espionage that essentially everybody says are a crock. However, they have now had their trials, I mean, lightning fast, two hours. You imagine a two-hour trial. You've got someone who's up on charges of spying to hurt the country and they can cover everything in two hours. It probably tells us something about what's going on. Anyway, no verdicts yet, but I don't think there's a person around the world who would do anything but fall out of their chair if a verdict came back other than guilty. This has led, of course, to lots of finger pointing all over the place internally and externally. But there was a comment today made by someone very high up in the government that I found truly intriguing, which is why I want to bring my first guest on today. Uh, Charles Burton is the senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonnell Laurier Institute. Let me just read what the quote is and then I'll get to Charles. It comes from Foreign Affairs Minister Mark Garneau. Here's what he said. Here's a quote. My advice to all other countries in the world is, if you are doing business with China and you have citizens of your country in China and you have disagreements with them, there is the possibility your citizens could be detained. Then he went on to say, this is going to continue until China gives up the practice of arbitrary detention. Uh, Charles, when I hear this, and I hear him say this, and I think to myself, well, if that's the case, why are we still doing business with China? Well, I think that's a good point, Scott. I mean, why would anyone go there, like for tourism or as a student or, you know, to explore business possibilities? Or, you know, more pressing, I think, to Canada, can we attend the Olympics there or should we be moving to move those Olympics out of China to venues in other countries? You know, there's uh, uh, it's it's pretty, pretty bad. Well, and again, like, you know, we all have heard about the two Michaels and we've all had our opinions and we've all formed our thoughts on this whole thing. But when you have one of the senior officials, I mean, remember, this is the member of the cabinet who was the one sent as the sacrificial lamb, I guess, to say we're not going to vote on the genocide issue. Um, When you have one of the most senior people in government saying, you know, they may just take one of your people if they're over there. Boy, that is a, to me, that's a striking indictment of any government that would then say, but we're fine to let that keep going because we really want to keep going with them. Yeah, I think that that is the question. And, 
you know, the ambassador, Dominic Barton, was not in Beijing at the time that these two men were were brought out for trial, and that's most unfortunate because, you know, the embassy left in the charge of a more junior official meant that we couldn't get access to the senior levels of the Chinese regime, and that could be connected to our not getting to see either Kovrig or Spavor when they were temporarily out of prison for the, that, you know, as you say, two-hour process. So, you know, Mr. Barton is back, and I'm thinking that maybe the government feels that he's not the right man for the job, and they'll put someone else into the ambassadorship that will be a bit more assertive with the Chinese regime. But, you know, we have also agreed to the EU and U.S. and U.K. proposal to um, uh, sanction four officials of the Chinese regime who are complicit in the Uyghur genocide. So we can expect that China will not just take that sitting down and, you know, the risk to Canada and Canadians will be enhanced by the fact that we're finally, you know, doing the right thing and and saying and doing something rather than just spitting out um, rhetoric. So you just said something that was truly fascinating to me, which it never dawned on me. Do you believe that if our ambassador had been there, that we might have had an opportunity, we being Canadians, the official representative of Canada, we would have had a chance to speak or even see either of the Michaels? It would have been more likely. I can't, I, I, you know, I don't know. We can't tell what really would have happened. But, uh, you know, I think it's pretty critical as, for one thing, we haven't seen them. Uh, Barton's only had one consular visit uh, with um, those two men separately. They're not, you know, they're not incarcerated in the same city. Uh, in the whole year of 2021, uh, you know, I think they've probably been subject to some fairly intense interrogation and sensory deprivation preparatory to this trial. I'm sure the re- Chinese regime would like them to make a false confession of being, you know, international agents of espionage. Um, they're living in crowded, unsanitary conditions at the time of a pandemic. Of course, we should, uh, you know, we're worried and we should try our best to try and, and reassure their families that they're still in reasonable emotional and physical health considering the horrendous circumstances. Yes, but, but if you're the ambassador, if, if you're the ambassador to China, and this has been a front page story for over two years now, what is a bigger, what is more important than being there for that? Well, I agree. I think, I mean, in fairness, I don't think that we knew that that the trial was coming up. But I think that uh, I, I really don't understand why the ambassador has been returned to Canada. He'll have to spend 14 days in, in quarantine here, which he's currently doing in a hotel in Toronto, and 14 days back in China for some meeting in Ottawa. Um, you know, what's so important to take him away from, from his post for such a long period of time when the tensions between Canada and China are rising, and uh, and we need someone able to speak to the to the people that count in China on site. So you know, I'm a bit puzzled by this, but there may be more to the ambassador being withdrawn than meets the eye, and maybe we'll find out in the days ahead. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope that there's more to it than meets the eye, because otherwise it sounds like it's just an absolute whiff. And I mean, you've got to hope that that's not just what this is, is an oops. We didn't really think through when we brought you home that this was going to happen. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's just play the the, hyperb- the the hypothetical game here. And let's say that Canada decided that what Mark Garneau said was real and we can't be doing business with China 
because of this, that it just doesn't make any sense anymore to keep our citizens safe. What would be the cost to us? I don't mean in dollars, but generally, what would be the cost to us if we decided we were no longer going to do business with China? Well, you know, it's only less than 4% of our external trade that goes to China. You know, people think it's a lot more, but really our main market is the United States. And so unlike countries like Australia and New Zealand, we're not that dependent on exports to China. And moreover, most of what we sell to China is um, agricultural uh, commodities, you know, um, canola seeds and and, um, lobster fish and so on, and minerals, mining products. So those are on the world market. So we could find alternative um, places to sell that stuff. I mean, obviously it's not easy, but it is a global market. So if China's not sourcing from us, they're sourcing from somewhere else. That gives uh, that gives a space for us to get in there. Um, you know, what about imports? What's that? What about imports, though? Well, I mean, China will, you know, do we want to stop bringing in stuff from China? I mean, that that would be a bit of a question. There's certainly a lot. I mean, you cannot, it's global supply chains. It's very hard to to buy a computer or, or you know, uh, um, stuff in Walmart that doesn't have components from China. So I don't think that China would cut off the exports into Canada. That would be devastating to their economy. But um you know, um, who knows what's happening? I think that in general, we're looking at a at a division between China and countries that are beholden to that regime, and the liberal West that thinks finds that engaging with China has unacceptable costs to our security and sovereignty. So really, it's incumbent on China to to start behaving in ways which are consistent with fair fairness, reciprocity, and justice in global affairs and start respecting trade commitments and stop picking up people off the street and throwing them into prison hell just because uh, the Canadian government, you know, doesn't do what you want and and doesn't direct a, a justice of the B.C. Superior Court to release the Huawei CFO back to China, you know. Well, and so surely, I mean, if, again, if we listen to what Mark Garneau says, and and again, I was kind of stunned that someone from our government would say that because the government, especially the cabinet has tried to be very careful about things like this. We could do some things without having to cut off all the economic things. We could say that Huawei is not going to do our 5G network, or we could, I think you and I talked about this on this very show, we could not have Chinese soldiers training on Canadian soil. Uh, or we could, you know, there's other things we could do, are there, are there not? Oh, yeah. I mean, and I think we should be cracking down more on, you know, Chinese money laundering, um, the fentanyl, the, you know, their sale of fentanyl, the, the the stuff we're seeing in the Cullen Commission out in B.C. about, uh, about you know, people associated with senior levels of the Chinese regime bringing in their corrupt, uh, funds and and laundering them through casinos and and real estate in Vancouver, you know we should be cracking down on on the activities of Chinese agents in Canada harassing Canadian citizens or intimidating people who have relatives back in China. You know there's a lot of stuff we could do, and of course we should be banning Huawei five G. You know I think that maybe uh, some of this change in the government's tone is related to positioning for the next election. I mean, after all, opinion polls indicate that you know, something like 15% of the Canadian population is happy with Canada's engagement with China, which means that an awful lot of voters don't think that the government is doing the right thing on China 
and that could affect their decision on which party to to x their ballot for yeah and, and one other thing and i wish we had a lot more time one other thing and you raised it right at the beginning and i wasn't going to talk about it today but it's, it's a great point that you raised with what mark garneau said how do we if, if you've got the foreign affairs minister talking about arbitrary detention and that if you run afoul of China or if you if the government is upset by something your country does, they could scoop up your citizens. How in good conscience can we send our athletes to the Olympics knowing that our foreign affairs minister has said this could happen? Yeah, I think that it's pretty clear that it would be irresponsible for the government not to do something on the Olympics now so that we can make alternative arrangements in time for the Games you know, people want to see winter sports. Like, we want to see who's going to be winning the hockey. And those athletes have spent four years preparing for it, and we shouldn't just at the last minute tell them that uh, China's not safe, don't go and, and compete. You know, we ought to give them a venue and an opportunity to still compete, just not in China. It's uh, it's always great having your insights on this. Really appreciate it. Dr. Charles Burton from the McDonald laurie Institute. Thank you for this. Take care, Scott. Uh, it is such a complicated, complex, difficult thing. But again, I was so caught off guard today when the foreign affairs minister, and again, this government has been really trying to kind of tiptoe around this, didn't want to say it was a genocide and wants to not, it wants to be careful with Huawei and all these other things. And then he comes out and says, we have this arbitrary detention. Be careful. Other countries, they may scoop up some of your people. I, I was a little surprised by this, but it does raise an awful lot of questions about what this government will do going forward about Canadians, including Olympians, going over to China. If this, if you as a government are saying this happens, and so you know this could happen, and then if it happened, what happens? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tomorrow morning, some point tomorrow morning, it's a long agenda, so it'll be t- maybe tomorrow afternoon. Sometime tomorrow, Hamilton City Council will vote And will almost certainly, it would be shocking if they didn't give the rubber stamp to give the go-ahead for city staff to begin negotiating a contract to host the 2023 Canadian Country Music Awards. Now, this was supposed to be held here last fall. Of course, COVID hit, everything got shut down. Uh, This year's is already spoken for. I think probably next year's is too. So we get 2023. It's great. It's a good thing. We want events here. And this really is one of... The first signs, we also have the Great Cup coming this fall, we hope, touch wood. But this is one of the first signs of us, that, that Great Cup was already in place. So this is one of the first signs of us really trying to get up off the mat from COVID. The question is though, how flattened are we onto that mat? How much work is going to have to be done to get up off the mat to exhaust the cliche and get back to where we were to get the tourism industry, the service industries, the entertainment industries back to, even if not to where they were necessarily, but back to a reasonable place. How much work is going to have to be done to make that happen? Tim Potasik is a guy you know from around town. If you don't know him by name, you certainly know him by work. He is the man behind Sonic Onion Records. He is a promoter of music. He is the guy who created and runs Super Crawl, which is one of the great events, which unfortunately has fallen victim a little bit to COVID lately. But he joins us now. Tim, how are you tonight? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? 
I'm doing great. Um, before we get into what we have to do to come back, maybe we need to build a foundation here and sort of lay it all out. For people in the entertainment business, the tourism, I'll, I'll, I'll clump you into the tour and biz, tourism business as well with Supercrawl. How bad has it been? Uh, it's It's been pretty bad. I mean, as bad as ever. It's never been this bad. <laughs> so, you know, between lockdowns and limitations and restrictions, um, obviously we all know we can't travel uh, for all intents and purposes. Um, and, you know, that is just has a huge impact all the way around, not just from an event perspective, but the people that see us, the restaurants, the bars, the hotels, the, you know, everything, the, the side events, everything that would happen when somebody comes to a town to see, you know, if they're coming for an event, they might do something else in the afternoon. So it just, it just ripples and ripples uh, to everybody who's in this industry. And, and I mean, at the very front of that, you represent musicians. I mean, how the people who work in the entertainment industry who are up front, how, how have they survived? It's been very, very challenging. A lot of them have taken whatever jobs they can in the meantime, you know, because uh, really for the most part, the musicians that we work with are generally touring musicians and the only way they actually make a, you know, reasonable living wage is if they're on the road uh, a vast majority of the time. So very challenging from that perspective. Uh, obviously, the government has been helpful in trying and attempting to, like, you know, give subsidies where they can and, you know, provide some relief uh, where possible. But really, I'd have to say that the musicians and the people behind the musicians, such as, you know, the techs, the road managers, uh, production people, they're the ones that are hardest hit because really their their craft is gone, right? There's There's nothing for them to do. So... And there's been pivoting, obviously. We've done live streams. Lots of people in Ontario and throughout Canada have been doing live streams. Artists have been doing themselves, attempting to try to make a go wherever they can. And again, that's been great, but it's also been very challenging because you never know when the next, you know, if you're doing it in a venue, you never know when the next time you'll be able to actually do it. Or you may start to book things and they get shut down. Um, so that, yeah, that's one that that's a tough part, especially for someone like you who is behind these things. Uh, there, there's been a number of times when it seems like we're able to start ramping up for something. And then all of a sudden, every the heat, you know, the brakes get slammed on again and you have to stop. And I mean, that's gotta be incredibly frustrating, not to mention probably pretty costly when every time you just get something ramped up, you have to bring it to a screeching halt. I'd say it's probably the hardest part, um, is just then, you know, people in the entertainment business. I would say by nature are very optimistic people, <laughs> you know, generalizing a little bit, but you know, I put myself in that category and we just want to work and we want to do things. So when the opportunity is there, you get going and then to be shut down and it's just happening on and on and on for, you know, a year now at this point, who knew? like, honestly, you told me a year, it would be a year last year in March. I would have laughed at you. Um, part of my optimism uh you know sort of squeaking in there but uh here we are and you know it could could go all the way into the fall or maybe even to next year too which would be which would be hugely problematic well there was a report today that i read it was by a group called destination canada and they had done a lot of talking to different agencies and tour whatever they've talking all over the place and they said that the first of all there have been five hundred thousand jobs lost in this sector across canada but that it's affected Again, tourism, which you're in, 
more than 9-11, SARS, and the global financial crisis combined. I mean, that's a, it, when you put those three things together and the impact each of those things had, it puts it, it pretty much crystallizes how bad this has been. Yeah, makes sense. You know, and I mean, we are, we're, we're bad as an organization, but hanging on. Uh, but others are much worse, you know, like we're, we're at 25% of our, you know, normal um, capacity, which, you know, is, is brutal. Um, but, uh, you know, every day that goes by, we try to find different ways and other ways to, you know, earn money in our sector um, and uh, forge forward, right? We've just been, again, lucky, you know, the wage subsidy has been huge for, for us, uh, being able to keep a good deal of our staff on uh, through this time. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tim, just before the break, we're talking about all the challenges that you guys have faced, you and others have faced. So walk me through this. How do we begin to dig ourselves out of something like this? How do we begin to get back, maybe not to where we were, but even to someplace where it's tolerable? Well, I mean, I think uh, we're all in the same boat, you know, not just the, the tourism industry, but, you know, the globe in general is that we have to, you know, hope the rollout goes well for the vaccines. And once people are vaccinated, then, you know, the reality is things should really start to open up. It'll be slow at first, of course, and we'll graduate into, you know, full capacity shows and events. Uh, but I, I think it will happen fairly quickly, Have a, you know, again, good confidence in the fact that you know the rollout uh is, seems like it's chugging along a little bit better this week than it was last week so and i think every week will get better and we'll get faster at getting people vaccinated and that should open things up and then at that point it's just a matter of um you know getting back to getting back to regular business and, and following the guidelines and, and you know moving moving the bar um we're going to do the exact same things we've always done um and do them to the you know, best of our ability, staff back up again, and and uh, hope this doesn't happen again. <laughs> do, do you do you worry at all that after over a year now of people learning different habits and being entertained in different ways, and you know, sitting in front of their screen to do things? Do you worry at all that maybe people won't be inclined to go back to live music or to see live plays or things like that? Or do you believe that once the doors are thrown open, people will flood back in like normal? Um, you know, I have to say that I think that maybe flooding is maybe an exaggeration, but, and there'll definitely be some reservations out there, but, you know, I look at it this way, you know, when your friend comes home and was like, oh my God, I was at the greatest show and they're talking around the water cooler the next day at the office and, you know, around the house to, you know, people in the house that, that maybe, you know, were hesitant to, to go out and be amongst people eventually, once they hear that story enough times, they're going to want to get out again, right? You know, human nature, no one wants to sit in the house. Uh, you want to get outside, you want to get out in the, in the air, you want to get out with friends, you want to do things, you want to have a drink, you want to go out for dinner, right? So I, I have a firm belief that people are not going to turn into global couch potatoes, sit on the, <laughs> on, the, on the couch and watch Netflix all day once we're allowed to go back outside again and see our friends, like, come on. Let uh, me ask you the flip side then. Um, assuming you're right, and, and I tend to think you are, um, well, we won't know until we see it, but I tend to think you are, but assuming you are, every musician, every band has been chomping, champing at the bit now to get out and get on tour and get back on the road. Will there not be such incredible competition for the entertainment dollar that is actually going to be tough for some of those who are in that world? 
Yeah, I definitely think there's going to be obstacles. It's going to be really challenging. Um, but I think, like, over time, you know, there's going to be a period where it's just go time. You know, like, you know, I see we're already seeing it. The fall is looking very promising. Hopefully, it, you know, we're able to execute a lot of things. Um, 2022 is just going to be crazy. And, yes, it's going to be tough. There will be lots of challenges for, you know, the entertainment dollar. But people are going to be, you know, at some point the momentum is going to swing. People are going to be very eager to get out, and they're going to want to spend money. They're going to want to go see things. They're going to want to catch up with the, you know, the bands, the theater shows, the dance troops that they used to know, go and see and love. And they're going to go out and do that stuff again, right? So, and I think, again, because the rollout is going to be, it's not going to be like flip the switch. Okay, tomorrow we're at full capacity. Go, you know. It's going to be a, you know, a, a tiered-in approach, and who knows how long that, that tiered-in approach is going to take. But I think that will also help, you know, get us to a point where, you know, this tiered-in approach will, will help assist in getting people out and not being, not overwhelm, you know, um, audience not overwhelmed the fact that um artists can't draw because you know they're they're playing a show and there's 10 other bands in hamilton playing a show on the same night competing for the same dollars it'll be like i said you know it's going to be a gradual thing and if it's gradual over three months or six months or a year we just have to wait and see but i think that will also help make it a reasonable rollout for for artists and uh, people in the industry uh, we only have a minute here. Um, to that point then, uh, we started this by talking about the council voting tomorrow about whether or not to try and, or not to try to get the Canadian Country Music Awards here in 2023, which is a great thing to bring a lot of thousands of people here and lots of music and everything else. That, that's fantastic. It's a great start. But if you were talking to the folks at the city, do you, as someone who knows how this business works, do you urge them to go after as many events as possible and just throw as many different things into the city as you possibly can? Or do you tell them, you know what, go after a few and do them really well and make them really huge and do it that way? Well, I always tell them to do it that way. <laughs> you know, again, there's a lot of professionals in town um, that are doing these things on a daily basis and, you know, the, I always felt like the city is incredible support, you know, for the professional community in this in this town. Um, and, uh, yeah, when the opportunity strikes and they can, you know, get a Country Music Awards, can get a Juno Awards, can get, you know, whatever, whatever it is, WWF, can get a Grey Cup, can get all these things. Absolutely. They, that's a city's prerogative, like a private entity, no matter how big, can't, you know, approach these things they need that municipal support so yeah i always encourage the city to go after these things and do it in a responsible way right so and i think that's what they are doing you know country music awards are already in the can it's coming back it's awesome great cup is coming it's awesome like these these are going to be huge marquee events when they happen and uh it'll help bring us back let us hope so, for sure. And Super Crawl. We're looking forward to Super Crawl whenever that can get back live as well. Tim Potasek, the man who's behind Super Crawl and so many other things in town. Thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was not that long ago that every single person listening, I'm guessing, was a Toronto Raptors fan. And why wouldn't you be? They were winning a championship. They were knocking off great teams. They were... I mean, look around here in Southern Ontario, we're not used to championships. We're not. The Leafs, 
I mean, it's been generations. The Raptors until then had been pretty much miserable. The Ticats, it's been a long time. The Blue Jays go back to 93. I mean, it's just not an area. We're just not used to it. So when the Raptors won, it was, oh, it was amazing. Well, we seem to be at the end of an era. At least that's how I would interpret this. Last night, the Raptors, who have lost, who had lost eight in a row, went into Houston. Losers of 20 in a row. The absolute sad sacks of the NBA. And the Raptors got blown out. Lost by 18 points. It was awful. Well, let me bring in Rick Zamperin from 900 CHML. Rick, um, is this rock bottom for a team that very, very recently was the cream of the NBA? Yeah, on-air commentary for tomorrow on CHML, and uh, some of the words that you are using will be appearing in my on-air commentary. (laughs) Taking the words right out of my mouth, because... Yes, it does feel, and, and you know, uh, amazingly so, in, in you know, two years' time since they raised the championship banner, um, that it appears to be the end of an era. And, and never mind, you know, the nine-game losing streak, although it is, you know, horrible. Uh, 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 you know, a big chunk of that was, you know, they, they just didn't have their whole team. You know, Giannobi, Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet, you know, three of their starters were not able to play because of COVID-19 protocols. Van Vliet, Van Vliet saying he had COVID-19. So I understand that. But I think more so, you know, where they are in the standings, um, the fact that Kyle Lowry, who is arguably the greatest Raptor of all time, is going to be 35 in a couple of days, which just happens to be the NBA trade deadline. He's not under contract for next season. Norman Powell, whose name is also swirling in trade rumors before the deadline, uh, can also opt out of his contract to, to seek a, a bigger payday and, and possibly will do so with another team. So, you know, you minus those two guys, Kawhi Leonard left a couple of years ago, Marcus Gasol last off season, Serge Ibaka last off season, Danny Green a couple of years ago as well. A lot of the pieces from that championship team are, are already gone and there could be two more in Lowry and Powell that will disappear in a couple of days. And I wouldn't be surprised really either way, whether they kept them or, or traded them away. But yeah, it, it does feel like it, it has ended rather quickly after that, you know, unbelievable championship run. Well, when you say you wouldn't be surprised either way, I got to tell you, if, if the Raptors, considering where they are, and don't forget this year, there's an expanded playoffs and they're still outside the playoffs. I mean, it's just yeah. a disaster of a year. Considering where they are, considering Lowry is going to be a free agent, so he doesn't necessarily return and probably won't because who wants to come back and just lose? Considering he is 35 years old, if you don't, if you're the Raptors and you don't trade him and don't get something for him, to me, it almost comes across as a dereliction of your duty. It really does. Yeah, if you're GM Bobby Webster and certainly President Masai Ujiri, I mean, you're looking at your team thinking, we can certainly improve for the future if we deal guys like Lowry and, and, and Powell. But I, I think the part that I'm kind of you know, trying to understand is, you know, if they don't get what they want, or at least anything close to what they want for a guy like Cal Lowry, are they going to deal him anyways? And because the fact of the matter is they could still re-sign him to a one or two year deal next year. I mean, that's not out of the equation. But if you can get some kind of draft pick, some kind of asset in return, knowing that Lowry can, I mean, he can walk to any team that he wants to. Uh, he's not obliged to sign with the Raptors next season as a free agent. If you can get something, then yeah, I think that's the avenue to go to. And certainly I think they can get maybe even even a little bit more 
out of Norm Powell, who right now doesn't cost as much as Kyle Lowry, who is producing at you know a, a you know a career highlight kind of pace as far as his production is concerned. Um, he can come off the bench. He can start. He's such a versatile player that uh, you know he's a valuable commodity as well. So you know there's still a decent core in Toronto with the three guys who are out and and Ananobi, who's only 23, Van Vliet. Uh, and Pascal, all sub twenty-seven years of age. You know that's a, that's a pretty decent core. You can build around that. Do they want to build by re-signing Lowry and Powell? I, I'm not entirely sure. So I think I'd be more surprised if they kept those two guys, and, and less surprised if they if they both walked out the door. Uh, you know, look, I, your hope is that you get two teams that both really want Lowry, and so they get into a, a you know, they panic that each other might get him. So right now, it sounds like Miami and Philadelphia both really want him, and you hope that that works so you get something, but. Honestly, Rick, at the, at the end of this, your team is so bad right now. There's Even if you can somehow get into the playoffs, there's no hope you're going to do anything. You're going to play Brooklyn in the first round in all likelihood. They're going to destroy you. Uh, you know what? At this point, you if it comes right down to it, you take almost anything for Lowry. Just something, as opposed to walking out the door when you get absolutely nothing. I mean, that's my view. Anyway, I, I don't know. It, just, it seems like if they were even remotely in contention, I would get, yeah, we'll keep him and we'll ride it out and we'll see what can happen here. But I just don't know how you possibly do that. Yeah, you know, the one kind of plan or thought that's out there is, you know, do do the Raptors go ahead and add someone at the deadline, uh, you know, hoping that, you know, they can make one last kind of, you know, epic run, which I don't really foresee because I don't think they're they're talented enough to, to get that deep into the playoffs. They might win around with the guys that they have, but, you know, if they're if they're playing Brooklyn in the first round, that's a really tall order. But if they're playing anybody else, maybe they can squeak out an upset. Um, I, I don't. But who I cares? Well, but who cares? I mean, you're not playing at home this year. You're in Tampa. Right. There's no home gate. There's no big money for hosting a home playoff game. No local fans can see you. If your best hope is to maybe squeeze out one playoff round this year or to build for the future, why in the world? That, that to me doesn't even seem like it's a, a decision. That's a, that, yeah. that's a why would why would that even matter? Yeah, and it almost, almost seems like a lost season. You know, the way they're playing, the whole COVID thing. They're they're not at home. Uh, you know, they've had injuries. They've traded away guys. They, they've been infected by the virus. You know, so many things have gone awry this year that it's almost a throwaway type year. So if if they can get something out of this, i.e., you know, some prospects for the future, then you got to make that move. I, you know, I'm leaning towards that being done. But back to my, you know, I wouldn't be surprised either way because I, I don't know. This team has been kind of funny in terms of what it's done at the deadline. There's rarely been a blockbuster. Uh, you know, trading Lowry, you know, they're not going to get anything blockbusterish in return. It's going to be, you know, a prospect, maybe maybe a second rounder, maybe a first rounder if a team is willing to do that, although I doubt it. Um, I, yeah, I just don't see them making any sort of any, any kind of headline kind of grabbing move uh, at this deadline. One thing that I'm very puzzled by, and lots of people have um, commented on the fact that Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment and Masai Ujiri have not come to an agreement yet. He is also a free agent, and a lot of people are wondering what's going on with that. And I don't know the answer. I don't think you know the answer. But, Rick, what really surprises me is I haven't... Now, maybe I just missed it. Maybe I haven't been paying close enough attention, but I have not seen Masai Ujiri in front of a camera, it seems, in months which seems really weird, especially considering the state of this team. You would think the guy who is in charge as the, you know, any, most times you a guy will go in front of the, the camera and take the bullets for the team to try and protect them a little bit. Well, I It's weird to me that Masai Ujiri has been invisible. 
Yeah, the last time I saw him on camera in a team kind of setting would be, I think, before the season, you know, just addressing the media and saying, hey, we're on. And I think it was basically about his future. You know, is he going to resign? What, what is he doing with Webster? What, what's he going to do with the team? What are the plans? And it was a kind of scene setter, you know, opening uh, press conference. And uh, he kind of set the table for what his hopes and dreams were for, for this season, but really didn't speak to anything beyond that maybe he's setting the table to ride off into the sunset. I mean, it's not the greatest of ways to do that. The lawsuit with, you know, the deputy sheriff out in California has been settled. Um, you know, that this team, you know, record-wise is in shambles. Um, you know, there's there's not any reason for him to stay here because he's won a championship. I know there's plenty of suitors that would love to have him because he brings, obviously, that championship medal to any kind of franchise. Um, he might be looking for a new challenge. Yeah, I, as I say, it just it seems odd to me that look, I'm not, I, I'm not taking a shot at Masai Ujiri. I mean, what the guy's done in bringing a championship, as I said in the intro. I mean, we're so unused to seeing it. That no one's taking a shot at Masai Ujiri, but he was a visible guy for so long, and during so many of the good times, that it's just weird that he's nowhere to be seen. And and again, maybe people who are listening saying, "Wait, I just saw him on a channel somewhere. I just heard him." Oh, okay. I haven't, and you haven't. It's just weird. It's it's if he's checked out, then say I'm not re-signing. Um, or maybe I don't know. D- does that hurt the team if he's a lame duck president? I mean, I think Masai Ujiri could get away with that because he's Masai Ujiri. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah, I think I think fans would certainly understand that. You know, if he says if he comes out tomorrow and says, "Hey, listen, I I, I want a new challenge. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know I need something." Uh, that is going to, you know, kind of push my buttons and, and, and rev up my gears. You know, he's already won a championship here. Maybe he wants to do some something similar in, in, a, in a bigger market or a different market or with a different team or with whatever the challenge is. I think he would be excused in doing that, knowing that you know, he's already climbed the summit of, you know, NBA uh, superstardom in terms of front office personnel. You know, former executive of the year, a guy who took a team and put a lot of, you know, phenomenal pieces together and, you know, they ended up winning the whole thing. I mean, you, you can't blame him for wanting to seek something uh, more. In saying that, he might resign for another five years because he wants the challenge of rebuilding this roster. I don't know. Um, that that's you know, it's it's almost a microcosm of this team. It's they're, they're kind of misdirected right now. You know, Pascal Siakam and Nick Nurse getting it uh, into it uh, at the end of the game, and, and Siakam's been you know fined in, in relation to that. Um, it, it just seems to be a season that has quickly gotten away. From the Raptors, and more so than just this nine-game uh, losing streak. You know, they started slow; they kind of rebounded a little bit, but it just hasn't been the same. Maybe you've just stumbled upon the most—you've uncovered and unentangled, untangled the secret here. Masai Ujiri wants a new challenge, so he is intentionally allowing this team to descend into complete chaos and disarray, <laughs> and then he'll sign a five-year contract so he has something to build from rather than a team that's just mediocre. Maybe Rick, maybe you've just stumbled on the real secret here. Could be. He's getting his magic wand ready come the offseason and they're going to land some big fish. It's too bad you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo has signed a long-term deal in Milwaukee. Yeah. That would have been a phenomenal piece in Toronto. But, hey, they got some work to do. There's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, fresh faces, I'm sure, in the next year or two. Uh, we'll see what happens. You know, what's really, it's a great thing you bring up that, too. Giannis, who's the, the Greek freak, he's a great player, one of the best players in the NBA. And there were lots of rumors all last summer that he was, he loves the Greek community in Toronto and he was going to mm-hmm. maybe be a free agent in Toronto, all blah, blah, blah. And then he ended up signing with Milwaukee. 
even if he had not signed with Milwaukee and was going on to the free agent market, it's a great question. Would he have looked at Toronto now with the way things are going and said, yeah, I want to be a part of that? Or would the whole plan have fallen apart because he looks at this and goes, yeesh. <laughs> he might be thinking now, well, I made a great choice. I mean, they have a great core in Milwaukee. And I think at the end of the day, you know, he was going to get paid more there compared to anywhere else because of, you know, the extra year that he can layer on that contract you know, when he resigns with his own team, um, you know, whether it was Toronto or any other team, they would really have to win him over with, you know, we are this close to a championship. The Raptors were there a couple of years ago, but they were, they are nowhere near that status this year. All right, we got to go, but I, I want to ask you one more thing. And that is um, when I started, when we started this conversation, one of the things was everybody two or three years ago was a Raptors fan. Everybody was, they had 2 million people on the streets of Toronto for the parade, for the championship parade. I don't, I can't think of anyone who didn't in some fashion or other follow at least casually what was going on in the playoffs. Nobody didn't follow to some degree. They ignited that kind of interest when they won. How deep do you think that interest is though? Do you think, I mean, when you look at what's going on, do you believe that the Toronto Raptors, with that success, built a deep, abiding, generational fandom that will survive this kind of downturn? Or do you think that, you know, that was a lot of interest because it was a winning team and they were doing really well, but you know what, call me and let me know when they're winning again and I'll come back, but I'm not really interested if they're just going to lose. I think I think the Raptors have had a pretty decent hardcore uh, group of fans for a number of years. I think the, you know the, the two million that showed up in downtown Toronto, they weren't all hardcore Raptors fans. You know that was an event to be at. People just wanted to be there to kind of soak it all in and revel in. You know the, the first Toronto championship. You know aside from the Argos Grey Cup years in a long, long time. Um, it almost feels like it's maybe not quite there, but it almost feels like Blue Jay ish post. 92 93 you know i'm going to get into the 96 97 you know late 90s early 2000s the team is good but not anywhere close to winning a title uh, you know some interest kind of waned uh, on following the blue jays and you know all of a sudden roger center got too cavernous and it wasn't a great place to visit and you know people were complaining about moves and you know the 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 team lost i think a little bit of interest and you know i think that might be the same for the raptors especially this year because they're not at home but I think once they get back at Scotiabank Arena and things are as close to normal as they can get, I think the fans will be back. It won't be you know two million hanging onto a parking spot in downtown Toronto, but uh, I think they're doing okay with their fan base. But it, it it does kind of feel at this moment in time that kind of post World Series championship lull that the Blue Jays went through. Rick Sanfran from 900 CHML, thank you so much for doing this. I know you were up at the crack of stupid this morning, and we appreciate <laughs> you taking a few minutes to join us today. No problem. Appreciate it. Uh, Rick put a thing on social media this morning about his alarm being set for 3 a.m. to be into the office. So the fact that he is even still coherent enough to have a conversation is a testament to his professionalism and probably that he just had a great dinner and is about to collapse or something. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.